So we're in the middle of a series uh, in the book of Acts, the series we've called Unstoppable Church. And really this series has come out of uh, thinking about where we are um, in, in this year of uh, craziness. Uh, 2020 has been a, a crazy year for lots of reasons. And, and for us as a church, uh, the situation we're in now means we can't meet as church in the traditional way. Um, beyond our church life, there's the world out there and it's been a year, hasn't it, full of uh, division, racial division and political uh, tension and all, all the, the, the fear of death, the spectre of death hanging over our, our world like it hasn't done really in our lifetimes. And we, as we've thought about the situation we're in, we've been thinking actually it's quite similar in some ways to the situation that the early church were in in the book of Acts. Um, they were in a situation where they weren't meeting as church in the traditional way, much like we're not. Uh, th- there was no traditional way to meet then. Um, they were meeting against the backdrop of uh, tension and division and the fear of death, much like we're doing. So as we're reading through Acts, we're learning a lot about how to be church, how to do church in these kind of days of uncertainty. And as we turn to Acts with that in mind, it's an encouraging uh, experience because what we see in Acts is that in the middle of all that, the church still grows. The church grows unstoppably. That's why we've called our series Unstoppable Church because God is behind it. And God has a plan, and his plan won't be thwarted by anything, not least a little pandemic. <laughs> so it's encouraging for us to see that as we turn to the book of Acts, because we, we worship the same God. The same God has the same plan now as he did then. So we're not um, looking through the book of Acts verse by verse. Uh, we're not doing the whole thing. We're kind of zooming in on little sections of Acts that are particularly relevant or particularly helpful for us in our situation. So two weeks ago, we looked at the question of, uh, do we obey the government? Is it ever right to disobey the government? Uh, Do listen to that message if you're thinking through that question at the moment. Uh, Last week, we looked at the topic of prayer, and we saw how the the early church, in the response to challenging situations, got on their knees and prayed together. And we thought about how we can be doing that um, in the situation that we're in now. The passage we're looking at this week follows directly on from the one we were looking at last week. It's the next bit in Acts. And the topic we're thinking about is meeting practical needs. We're thinking about how the church, the early church, loved each other practically and met the needs that arose in their community. And that, again, is a very relevant issue for us, isn't it? Particularly over the last six months, uh, COVID and coronavirus has, has surfaced. It's caused a lot of needs that we wouldn't have seen before. For instance, you have to self-isolate. Someone has to go out and do your shopping. That was never a thing before. Um, perhaps people are shielding, are vulnerable, need other people to go and buy their medicines for them. We're suddenly in a situation where we're much more needy of each other than we were. There's the, the needs that have been arisen from COVID, but then there's all the, the ordinary needs that were there anyway, that have been kind of made, made worse or made more obvious by COVID. There's a, when, when someone gets ill and you just, need, you just need help, you need a lift to the hospital or you need someone to watch your kids, you need someone to make you a meal. There's when you run into financial difficulties and you just need a helping hand. You need someone to just bless you with a gift of, of some kind. All kinds of needs, relational needs, trauma that we go through, um, mental health issues, all kinds of things that we struggle with normally that are still needs and still need to be met. And as a church, um, we think, the Bible thinks, it's crucially important, it's a really important part of being a church that those needs are met in some way. We all have practical needs in our lives It's a a central part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and be his church together that we meet those needs. The question is, how does that work? How does it work when a need arises in a church community? 
how is, how is that kind of help organized? Is it organized at all? How is it motivated? How, how does it work? Why is it important? And those kinds of questions are exactly the questions that our passage today answers. How does it work? Is it organized at all? How is it motivated? Why does it matter? Why is it important? And most of all, how does it work for us? So if you've got your Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 4. Or um, <clears throat> if you haven't got a Bible app on your phone, just go to a browser and type in Acts 4 ESV. Scroll down to verse 32 and we'll pick up um, at verse 32 from Acts chapter 4. <clears throat> so the, as I mentioned, this passage follows directly on from last week's. So the believers have just been in a prayer meeting and that the floor has been shaken. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Their prayers have been answered. And Luke goes on in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Sounds different, sounds intriguing. I think it's easy to, to, to look at this text, to come to this text and get the wrong idea of what it's saying. To get the idea that it's, it's saying that there was some kind of uh, Christian communism going on where they, they renounced all of their property and everyone kind of shared everything. Um, there's no such thing as private property anymore. Um, it's all owned by the state, or in this case, the apostles. Um, there are some denominations of the Christian church that do live like that with varying degrees of success. And there's various issues with it, I think, that we won't go into now. I don't think that's what this text is describing or advocating, actually. But it does raise questions for us, doesn't it? It raises questions. How does this work for us now? So what we're going to do this afternoon is look at three questions. First of all, what? What exactly was happening? We're going to look at the text carefully and see what was happening. Secondly, why? Why did it matter? We'll look at what the significance was of what they were doing. Um, And I think there are three major things, uh, areas of significance for what they were doing. And thirdly, so what? what? What does it mean for us? Okay? So what's going on? Why is it significant? And so what? So first of all, then, what was happening? Have a look at the text at verse 32. What verse 32 is describing is an attitude. Verse 34 and 35 are describing examples of behaviour that flows from that attitude. Okay? So it's, it's not saying that everyone gave all of their possessions all the time, but occasionally, as there was a specific need, some people who were wealthy landowners or owners of, of property um, or, or houses sold some of their property or houses and gave the money to those who were in need. It's a response. It's an occasional response to an occasional need that, that we're seeing in the church. So it's, it's incredible. It's, it's sacrificial. It's, it's, um, it's, it's radical. Um, but it's occasional and it's ongoing. Okay. And it's another thing to note is it's spontaneous. So it's not legislated. The apostles didn't put down a rule and say, when this need occurs, this person needs to sell this property and we're going to arrange it this way. What happened was they didn't consider everything that, was, that, that belonged to them their own because they were one in heart and soul and that expressed itself in this sacrificial generosity by, generosity by, by some of the, the landowners. So it was spontaneous, not legislators. That's what's going on. That's what's happening. 
There's a unity amongst the church. There's a, a, a bond of fellowship between them. And therefore, there's an attitude of this person in our group shouldn't be in need. And if there's a need, I'm going to do whatever's in my power to meet that need for them. So that's what was happening. And it was significant. It was massively significant. Um, it had a huge impact on the surrounding uh, city that, that were watching them. And Luke places this account here for a reason. He puts this here because of its significance. So how was it significant? I think there are three ways that what was happening in the early church here is significant. First of all, I think there was a historical significance. So all through the Old Testament, what you see is God concerned for the poor. Poverty is something that arises because of the brokenness in the world that comes from sin. It's a bad thing. And God is always concerned about it. So in the Old Testament laws that he gave to his people Israel, they were told, um, when you harvest a field, don't go right to the edges. Leave the margins for the poor people. So you might know the story of Ruth. And she was gleaning in the field of Boaz. What she was doing there was uh, making, taking advantage of the Old Testament provision for poor people in that country, in that society. And that's God's concern. God's always been concerned for the poor. In fact, we read in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 15 and verse 4, God says, there should be no poor among you. That's God's vision for his people. And all through the prophets, in the Psalms, the Proverbs, poverty is said, this, this shouldn't be. And when the Messiah comes, he will deal with this, um, finally. And what we're seeing here is a fulfillment of that. That Deuteronomy 15, there will be no poor among you. Acts chapter 4, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. We're seeing a, just a, a first glimpse of a fulfillment of what, this is, of what this is saying. It's a signpost towards God's kingdom. Not perfectly now, but one day this is what will be, and it's a signpost towards that. So I think there's a historical significance. I think there's also an evangelistic significance to what they're doing. So verse 33, have a look at verse 33. Um, verse 32 is about their attitude to their possessions. Verse 33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. It's talking about the apostles' teaching. Verse 34, he goes back to talking about uh, social action. There was not a needy person among them. As many as were owners sold them, etc. So at first glance, that, that verse 33 there seems to be a little bit out of place, doesn't it? It's talking about the, the preaching and teaching the apostles to the resurrection. What's it doing there in the middle of uh, a text all about giving and practical care for each other in the church? Well, it seems out of place, but it's definitely not out of place because the way that Luke writes this text, it all flows together. It all flows together. It's connected. So the love the people have for each other is evidence of the grace that's upon them all. And the love they have for each other, the practical love the Christians show for each other, gives power to the apostles' teaching. Think about that. The way that the Christians live, their life shows the life of Jesus. Just think of the apostles. They're in, in Jerusalem. They're, they're um, Peter and James and John. They're sharing, Jesus has died. He's rose again. He, he, he appeared to us. And this is the fulfillment of the scriptures. They're, they're proclaiming the resurrection. If people see them saying all that stuff and then look at the Christians that are following them, look at the believers, and their lives look no different from the surrounding culture, what does that say? It says, this doesn't really work. What are, you, what are you talking about? It doesn't really mean anything. But they look at the Christians and see them selling their possessions, giving the money to the apostles, and then sharing it out, and there's no needy people among them. That speaks volumes, doesn't it? It gives power to the apostles' teaching. People see the life of Jesus in the life of his people. 
you may have come across, um, you may not have come across, but there's a historian called Rodney Stark who wrote about the, the growth of the early church, a historian, um, fascinating writing about that period of, of time. And he highlights, well, first of all, the amazing growth of the church. Um, by AD 300, they think there are around 6 million Christians, a huge number of Christians, it just exploded. And he gives lots of reasons for this. But intriguingly, one of the main reasons he gives for the growth of the early church was plagues. That's not what you expect, is it? Plagues. It's a topical uh, thing to say. There was a, a pandemic, uh, worse, far worse than ours, around the middle of the third century. They call it the, the Plague of Cyprian. At the height of this pandemic, uh, over 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. So hugely uh, lethal. But what Rodney Stark says is that one of the reasons the church grew in the way it did was by the way that Christians responded to that plague. In the pagan culture around them, people ran away. People uh, looked out for themselves. When someone got ill, it was keep them at arm's length. But the Christians went into their homes and they cared for each other. They put themselves in harm's way. In many cases, they sacrificed their own lives to care for their own. And people looked on at the Christians loving each other and said, what's going on? That's different. And Roddy Stark says, that's one of the main reasons the church grew as it did. Because of the way Christians responded to those plagues. Because of how Christians loved each other. The life of Jesus is seen in the life of his people. And it's almost always the case. Just think back, if you're a Christian, think back to your story of how you came to know Jesus, how you came to put your faith in Jesus for the first time. Think back to your own story. Almost always there's some element of seeing the way other Christians love each other and being intrigued and thinking there's something different. What is that? I want to know more. I want some of that. Is that part of your story? I know it's part of my story. It is. Um, When I was a uh, university student, I went through a period of time where I had a number of doubts about Christianity and I was questioning everything and saying, is it really true? Is it really mine? And in that period of my life, one of the things that convinced me, yeah, this is true, one of the things was looking around at my Christian friends and seeing how they loved each other and saying, I can't explain that any other way. It has to be the life of Jesus in them. So what's happening here is massively significant, historically, evangelistically, but also it's significant theologically. Because what's happening is only possible through the gospel. What's happening here is only possible through the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, this kind of thing doesn't happen. Okay? This kind of thing doesn't happen naturally. There was a, in, in the early church in Jerusalem, there was a huge wealth difference. Um, think back a few weeks ago, we, we, we thought about Peter and John healing the man who was um, begging outside the temple. He, he'd been begging all his life. He became a Christian, joined the church. You also have in the church these people who are selling their, their land. They, they are owners of land. They own probably multiple houses. There are rich people in the church. They're very poor people in the church. There's a huge wealth difference. And they're one in heart and soul. Okay, that doesn't happen. That is not normal. When I mentioned earlier that, um, that the band of brothers thing, you know, that, that kind of being knit together in, in friendship, what, what came to your mind? What picture came into your mind? What do you visualise when I talk about that level of friendship? I, I bet it's a group of people who are similar to each other. Isn't it? When you visualise that kind of close friendship, when you've experienced or tasted that kind of close friendship, anywhere outside the church, it's, it's between people who are similar to each other. Why? Because that's the only place it happens. Because <laughs> that's the, in, in, it, it, that requires people who have things in common, who are similar at some level. But that's not what's happening here. I want you to see this. In the early church, they were one in heart and soul and they, and they were not the same. 
They were not similar. They were not even remotely like each other. They had nothing in common apart from this bond that they shared. The only way to explain that is that there was something else, something else that put them on an equal footing, something else they had in common. And that thing is the gospel. What do we mean by that? Well, um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus says um, these words in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Right, we all know the words. You might know the words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus says the entry requirement for everyone into the kingdom is being poor, being poor in spirit. What does that mean? It means recognizing you don't have anything to offer spiritually. You have nothing to offer of value. You have nothing to contribute to the cause. You're wholly reliant on Jesus. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. I'm not contributing anything here. One preacher that I heard describes uh, this as abandoning a middle-class spirit. <laughs> a middle-class spirit is the opposite of being poor in spirit. A middle-class spirit is, well, a middle-class person. What, what's that? It's a middle-class person typically is someone who has choices. Someone who's in control of their own life to one extent or another. Someone who is able, relatively. Someone who can, uh, on, on the whole, get what they want if they work hard for it. That's the mantra, isn't it? You can achieve what you want if you work hard for it. Okay? That's a middle-class person. The middle-class spirit applies that to spiritual things. I, I'm, I have choices. I'm in control. I can work hard. I can achieve what I want to in my relationship with God, in my life, in my whatever, through, through working, through putting the, the effort in. That's a middle-class spirit. Poor people, on the other hand, and I'm talking about really poor people, like third world poverty, people that are born into nothing, they have nothing of value, they have no control, they have no choices, they have no ability to work themselves out of the poverty that they're born into. Um, they can't do anything, they're helpless. Being poor in spirit is recognising that spiritually you're more like those people born into third world grinding poverty than you are to middle class people like us. Spiritually, you're poor. You don't have choices, you don't have control, you're not able to work yourself out of the position you're in. You can't contribute anything spiritually. You're poor. And a Christian is someone who sees that to be true of them, that I'm poor in spirit, I can't contribute anything, who sees their own poverty. A Christian is someone who then sees Jesus, who, though he was rich in heaven, became poor. He came to this earth, he was born into a poor family, he lived a poor life, he had nowhere to lay his head, he was rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, he had the Last Supper in a borrowed room. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was crucified as a common criminal. He was made poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. A Christian is someone who sees that, sees what Jesus did, and sees it was done for them. And sees Jesus did that for them because he loves them. And a Christian is someone who sees that and relies totally on Jesus for their salvation. Nothing in my hand I bring, the Christian says, simply to your cross I cling. It's the only place I can look for hope. That's what a Christian is. And the result of that is when you're poor in spirit, you look around at the other Christians who are in the same position as you and there's common ground. There's oneness. You fall in worship at the one who saved you and you, and you, you see the person next to you doing the same. The rich person and the poor person worshiping Jesus. There's common ground, there's unity. That's what the gospel does. And this, what we're seeing here in Acts, is only possible. It's only possible because of the gospel, because of what I've just described. 
So what's going on here is massively significant. It's significant historically because it's a fulfillment of what um, God promised. It's, it's significant evangelistically because the life of Jesus is seen in his people. It's, it's significant theologically because the gospel is the only way this can happen. It's massively significant, but say what? Say what? What does it mean for us? What's the, what's the application for us? What does it mean for us? Is this something that we should look at and aspire to? And should we then uh, go home and take an inventory of our possessions and start going on eBay and seeing what we can get for them so we can share the money amongst us and give it to those who are in need? Well, maybe that might be something you want to do at some point. I'm not saying no. But that's not where we should start the application of this passage. Because that's not where this passage starts. The passage talks about practical things that believers did to help and serve each other. But the passage doesn't start with their behaviour, it starts with their attitude, doesn't it? Verse 32, it starts with how they feel about each other. So that's where our application needs to start. It needs to start with our attitude. It needs to start with the gospel. And the first thing to say is, if you're not yet a Christian and you're hearing this, you're seeing this and imagining this kind of community being described and you're looking in and you're thinking, I'm intrigued by that. What's the way in? The first thing to say is, this is the way in. Become poor in spirit. Abandon that that notion that you can contribute anything. Humbly come to Jesus and say, I cast myself on you. I'm fully reliant on you for my salvation. I'm not going to contribute anything. That's the way in if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, where do we start? Look around. Look around at the people around you. Whatever their economic status, whatever they offer, whatever they have on their CV, whatever they can contribute to the group you're in, and see they're the same as me. What the gospel does is it says we're all the same ultimately. We're all poor. We all contribute nothing. We're all in the same boat. And we're all worshippers of Jesus because of what he's done for us. We're all worshippers of Jesus because he's saved us by his pure grace, by nothing that we've done. So in that position, in the same boat, on the same level as poor people, we then have unity. We then have a kind of togetherness. We can have a togetherness. And this is radical. It's like the, the, the beggar, the, the homeless person, and the, and the executive who drives, who drives off in their Mercedes to their uh, big office block every day, worshipping together in the same building, side by side, with nothing between them. They have common ground. Only possible because of what Jesus has done. And as you worship, as you see others in the same position as you, and then what, we, what we're seeing in Acts will happen. It's what naturally happens whenever Christians grasp their, who they really are. Whenever Christians fully grasp the reality of their situation, of who God is and, and who they are, this is just what happens. There's a love that is stirred up and there's a natural sort of sacrificial giving that is stirred up as a result of whenever this is the case. So I think as we think about this as Trinity, as we think about how this looks for us, there's all kinds of things I could say. That I think the first thing I want to say is that I want us to be encouraged actually as a church. We're talking about how we love each other practically and serve each other. You may have spotted in the church email, was it last week or the week before, we put a little note about the survey. A number of you will have completed that survey. We're doing a little refresh of, the, of the, our online presence and we thought it'd be good to get the, some opinions from, from you guys on uh, how you find church, what, how, your opinion of, of Trinity, what, what um, you enjoy about it, what you appreciate. 
a huge number of those comments came back saying, what I appreciate about Trinity is it's a loving community. It's a place where I'm cared for. It's a place where I can be real. It's a place where I know that people are going to look out for me when I'm struggling. And so I want to say, be encouraged. That's you guys that are doing that. It's, that's the, 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 the substance of life together. Um, as you've reported, it is that, yeah, we, we're experiencing something of this. And some of you will have experienced uh, people giving to you financially. Some of you will have experienced giving to others financially. Some of you will have experienced both, giving and receiving, in very practical ways, very real, tangible ways. I've got a need here. Someone in my church family is seeing me as their brother or sister, and they're, they're meeting that need because they've got resources that I don't have. It's happening. It's going on. You may not be aware of it, but it is. And I want to encourage you, encourage us with that. And to say it's not normal. <laughs> This isn't normal. It's only possible. It only happens because of Jesus, because of the uniting work of the gospel in our lives. So I, I want you to be encouraged. I was encouraged reading those responses because that's kind of the, a, a central part of the vision of Trinity, actually. The, the whole, um, what we're trying to achieve when, when this church was set up is that, that we want to be a healthy community because we believe that God is a healthy community. Um, God as Father, Son, and Spirit is, is, is a loving uh, self-giving community and we want to be a church who reflects him in the way we love each other and a church therefore who are attractive to those around us as they see us loving each other that's kind of the whole point of why we exist we want to reflect him and, and be a, a healthy community right and isn't that what the world is craving isn't that what the world around us is craving a community of people to be part of a group of people where there's genuine love where you can truly be yourself and you can truly accept others as they are. And you can give and you can receive and you can be part of something that we all, that we all want. That's what, everyone's, that's what people around us are, are craving, isn't it? So let's share it. <laughs> we, we have, a, even in a, sm a small way, a taste of something of this. Um, and we'll come on to other ways that I think we could. That there, there are all sorts of ways that we can be challenged by this appropriately as well. But I want us to be encouraged at one level. Um, that there is some of this happening. And there's people out there who are, who are longing for this. So another point of the whole point of Trinity is let's share it. Let's share it with those around us. There's all kinds of ways, even in this season, where the way that we're meeting looks very different to what we're used to. And um, we're not able to meet in a church, on, on, in, a, in a school on Sundays, and we're kind of doing different stuff. The, the substance of our life together is still very much there. Um, and that's something that people can be invited into. So, so get out there and do it. That's, that's what we want to be doing. But it's healthy as well, I think, not just to be encouraged, but to be challenged, because there is much that we can be challenged by in these verses. It's not a natural thing, is it, to, to view our possessions in this way, to see what I own as not just mine, but for the common good. It's not a natural thing to think. So as you process this, um, why not just follow through in your mind the implications of what I've been saying? If you look around at your brothers and sisters in the church family and, and see people in need, then what, what's, the, what's the implication of that if you've got something and they haven't got something? Well, is there something I could be doing to meet that need practically? Is there some way I could be contributing? I think that's, those are questions we should be thinking. Not as a law, not, as, not something imposed from above, but because we look around and we see we're all in the same position. We're all poor. We're all poor in spirit. And Jesus has saved us all by, by pure grace in love. We're all in the same position. And therefore, being one in spirit, being one in heart and soul, 
how could I not? How could I not? I think it's good for us to think that through and, and examine our own hearts. Where am I still being perhaps middle class in my spirit? Where am I still thinking that what I've got is what I've earned and not what I've been given? Where am I still thinking that what I want is what I have is what I should need to hold on to and is not something I want to give away? Where am I, where am I not quite sort of getting this right in my own heart? So I think it's good for us to be encouraged. I think it's good for us to be challenged. But most of all, what I want is for us to catch the vision, to catch the vision for being a part of this kind of community, a part of a group of people where there is real, genuine love expressed in real, tangible ways because of the unity we have in Jesus. Wouldn't it be great to be a part of that kind of community? Wouldn't it be great to, to both give and receive that kind of tangible love from each other? It's happening. Be encouraged. Be challenged to think about how you could be doing it more and look for opportunities to, to live this out um, in, in life, in, in pandemic life, in life where we can't meet up as we usually would. There's all kinds of other ways that we can still be finding out what the needs are and seeking to meet their needs. Because the life of Jesus is seen in the life of his people. The love of Jesus is seen in the love of his people for each other. We have the opportunity to have this. The world out there wants it. So let's embrace it and let's share it.